All right, hello and welcome to episode 21 of Dano Says So. A little bit longer break between episodes than usual this time, but I'd like to think we're coming back in pretty strong. Um, most anybody who watches this podcast will recognize today's guest. He uh, first came onto my radar when I was a very, very young man through his work in Minor Threat, then Embrace, Fugazi, The Evens, Ricky, they've all made a mark. And for the last 40 years, he's been involved in the running of Discord, you know, first the founding and then the running of Discord Records, which for a lot of people is the gold standard as far as a large DIY operation goes. So Ian McKay, thank you for doing this. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me on your show. Yeah. It was certainly a pleasure, and I appreciate, I appreciate you making the time. Um, first question might seem a little bit weird, but it has to do with scale. Okay. Scale? Um, yeah, and I'll explain what I mean. You and I actually first met at Maximum Rock and Roll House, so that's one-on-one -on -one in a residence, okay? The first time I ever saw you play was somewhere in, in, in the Inland Empire. It was maybe a Grange Hall, maybe some sort of a meeting hall. What band was it? It, it was for first time. First time Fugazi came out. Um, Chris, uh, you probably saw the. It was probably the. Uh, was it the um, Elms Elms Lodge in um, in Pomona? It probably was. If it helps you any, Chris Haskett was there. Yeah, I know that that might have been the Moose, maybe Moose Lodge, a Moose Lodge okay. in, in Pomona. I remember that night because we did that show. The guy Bill from Toxic Shock put that show on. Yeah, right. and. And uh, um, I remember there was a lot of confusion because there was two, um, there was two, uh, I guess in Pomona, there's two different moose lodges. Okay. I can't remember, I always say Elks Lodge. I can't know if it's moose. Anyway, it's one of those kind of lodges. Would have thrown off I told you, I think it might have been eagles. But anyway. Well, you know what, motherfucker, I can figure this out because it's on, <laughs> it'd, be on, it'd be on the Fugazi Live series site. I know we're live, but we're going to look it up right now. Hold on a second. We're All right, see. fair enough. We're going to settle this right now. I don't want you to, I don't want to. No, well, so you, while you're digging it up, let me tell you what I meant by scale. So from, from right. that, from, from, from that show, right. Then I see in Z records and a few years later, maybe two years later, maybe a year later, uh, probably a few years later. Um, I was lucky enough. We shared the stage at the Hollywood Palladium. Yeah. Right. A few years. Was after that would know. That, was that, was that no for an answer? No, that was four one. That was four one one. Oh, four one one. Right. Yeah. I remember. Yeah. That show. Yeah. Okay. So. Go ahead. So let me. I was going to tell you it's at Elks Lodge, okay, in Pomona, and mm -hmm. uh, that was the night after the the uh, Zed show. By the way, not okay. Was, so I've got them backwards. Yeah. Right. So the first you were the you were at the uh, Zed show. I was outside the Zed show. The Zed show was sweating. You know, I knew, about, I, was gonna, I knew I was going to be seeing you the next day. So no, no, that Zed show was like twelve people. That's not the way I remember it. But wow. All right. I'm, I'm I remember about the Zed show. Here's what I remember about this the Zed show, which was so great that it was so awkward when we played. Big Frank mm -hmm. put that show on. Yeah. And um he's a good dude. And uh we played the show and we got there and they had a little tiny PA and they had one mic. But there's yeah. Guy and me are both Two singers. singers. Right. So then we just, one of us just didn't have a mic. There's no backing, like we had to sing the backup vocals to the air. And there was only about, as I recall, like 15 people there, and they were all just standing there kind of freaked out. Because really, the first time I've been, I had played a show in L.A. since Meyer Thread. It may so, be a false memory on my part. There could be some other reason that I was not inside. And history and the, the size of Fugazi later may have re-justified it in my mind. Well, I remember we, at some point, I, we were like, you know, you're between songs. And we're like kind of making small talk. And I said, I said to the crowds, like, so what are you guys buying today? 
right. there was like a long silence because everyone was i think people were kind of freaked out to be in there and then right in the back just said oi comps right <laughs> of course then the, the next night we played in um we played the elks lodge show okay um, in pomona and at that show the guy from uh bill from tasha shock mm-hmm. and uh, and also uh the flip side people worked on that gig too and ink disease they were all kind of involved mm-hmm. and um that there's two elk lodges or two elks lodge in pomona okay. and whoever made the flyer put the other elks lodge address and phone number mm-hmm. on the on the flyer so the show the fly the addresses they're not the right they, on the flyer so people would get there and there's nothing going on and they call the number the people are like yeah there's nothing going on here it's because it's the other elks lodge right they're going, oh god there's also that sh- both those shows were miserable for me because i had gotten poison oak or something or poison okay. ivy a few days earlier in san francisco so I was completely, my whole side was covered with a rash. And well, that's fun. Yeah. Anyway. Well, so so in this, scale, well, so scale. let's see we how played people like I am before I, get, before I get to the point of the, the actual crux of the question. I don't remember that show being, it was, I remember it being well attended, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a, you know, pack them in and recent no, no. thing. Yeah. Okay. I, mean, I can tell you, I have 20 people listed for the, uh, the Zed show. And I have, um, I didn't even write it down. I think it's about a hundred, maybe about 200, 100, 100 that people. That sounds about the, right. Yeah. You know, and it was not a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But, well, so anyway, that in a very short period of time, that's for, for me, as far as being exposed to you guys, it's the country club in Reseda. It's the Palladium. And when I was living in Berkeley, I saw you guys in Sproul Plaza, which is a, to people who don't know, is a massive outdoor courtyard. It was overflowing. There were people packing every balcony. What I wanted to ask you is someone who comes from DIY, do-it-yourself punk rock, you know, cram it into any room you can do, right? And someone who's, who's to my perception, largely message-driven, right? And you start to get into those bigger spaces and those bigger, bigger crowds. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you were, like the delivery was effective? You, did you have a preference? And did you feel, to me, it's, it almost seems like the message can seem like a, a, pebble, in a, a pebble in a very large pond in that setting. You know, I mean, you're the focal point. You're the focal point. With that many people and with that dynamic, do you think people are receiving it as well or digesting it as well? I would say it's, it's hard. It's, it's a hard thing to measure. Um, I think the point really is that we responded. The idea was to respond to the circumstances as they occurred. Okay. So, for instance, it's, I mean, I, like one of the themes of my life really is, you know, it's the weather. Dress accordingly. So right. it doesn't, so that's just the way I, I approach it. So in the case of, in many ways, I would find um, a very small show in some ways, sometimes more awkward mm-hmm. and maybe harder to get into the kind of communing that it, I find important in for shows. Like it's like, cause people are so usually it's the crowd, the crowd are the ones who are freaked out, not the band. Right. I have, I, mean, I have zero stage fright, so I've never had stage fright. I don't get, I don't get nervous. I just, I'm very comfortable on stage. Um, but I've been, you know, for guys we played big shows, people I think felt like they felt comfortable because they're in a big crowd. But if we played a small show, like occasionally we would do weird, tiny little shows, and then I think the crowds were like almost. It was not this. It was wrong. It seemed wrong. It just felt the scale for them was wrong. 
I mean, one of the things that you have to think about is that the crowd is actually the show. Mm-hmm. In the band, like, you know, when you, if you ever saw the even, we used to, I used to always start by saying, you know, <clears throat> a show is a, is a collaboration between a band and an audience. Um, and the proof of that is if the audience, the audience wasn't there, then the band is just practicing. Right. Right. And if the band is not there, then the audience is having a Quaker meeting, right? Because they're just standing there silently. Right. So that's sort of the, um, so I see it as like a, as a joint effort. So <clears throat> yes, there, there's a sweet spot for gigs. Okay. Like when you really, like there's this, this, the band and the audience are really kind of together, but there's something to be said for big audiences. that can be really overwhelming. Like I've been in, you know, I've been in shows where, you know, you have thousands of people singing. It's pretty elevating, you know. And, it is. It's powerful. I agree. So, so, but I mean, I think that maybe what has you sort of, what you're asking about is like, can the message be conveyed? But I think that, is that correct? That the right, Yeah, that essentially. Right. Essentially, so, when it gets so big, I may have been exposed to some of the wrong big crowds lately, but it just seems like more of a party and less of a... <laughs> less of a religious experience. I don't know. That's kind of corny, but I, I, yeah, I would say there's no question that, um, I mean, if you like me, I think like if you really cut your teeth on small punk shows, Mm -hmm. that's like, that's where the new idea can really unfurl. So the new idea for me is like, when you talk about like sort of a religious moment or like, for me, I always say it's like transcendent. Usually those are really small shows because those mm-hmm. are like the new ideas are being presented and you're like, wow, this, these people are, you know, it's not, you know, they're, they haven't really, they haven't mastered it yet. So it's so beautiful because it's raw and you feel it. Like that's how I, how I, it's usually with the bigger shows, most big shows, I feel like the bands, they have like, they have it dialed in in a way that's like mm-hmm. a performance. I don't think, I think with Fugazi, like for us, I mean, first off, as you may know, we never use a set list ever, right? Okay. That was part of our deal. So for us, every show was a roll of the dice for that night. And really the question was, can we, you know, can we bring it? Can we make something happen tonight? And there are shows like that, like that Sproul Plaza show, it was outdoors. It was a lot of people just walking by. It was a lot of college kids didn't know us. It was mm-hmm. a really different circumstance. Um, but it had it was also quite beautiful and it had its own kind of it was a memorable afternoon, I thought. Um there's other shows I did. I've done small shows where I spend the whole time just dealing with a few brats, and it's just such a that to me is not memorable. That's tedious. In a, in a smaller crowd, I could see where you're more vulnerable. Where you're more vulnerable to the occasional rotten egg, sure. Yeah, but I think that I think that the anyway, the, in terms of conveying the message, the message is the music. Right. So sometimes seeing music in a bigger crowd, you know, if you bring it, it can be still transformative for the people in the room. Or maybe there's one person who feels nothing, and somebody else who's having a religious experience. I don't know. It's not a all I know is here's here's the way I looked at it. When we played Zed Records, twenty motherfuckers wanted to come see us, mm-hmm. and we played Sproul Plaza. You know, whatever three thousand people wanted to see us. That's what I can tell you. So if three thousand people want to come see us, I'm not playing Zed Records. 
Mm -hmm. yeah. 21 of Dupsius, I'm not playing Sproul Plaza. It's I, just grasp, a, I, I grasp it's your dress a, for the best for the weather analogy. Right. It's just, it's a, it's a practical thing. Like I, Amy and Joe and I play in Kariki now, and maybe a few hundred people will come see us, but I don't think, well, gee, we're not, we're, we're failing because we're not playing to 4,000 people. I don't think about that at all. I don't give a fuck about that. What I think is, how many people want to see us? 200? Okay, let me find a room that holds 200 people. Right. That's all. Like, that's all I ever think about. Like, mm -hmm. I just want the room to make sense for the number of people who want to see it. I don't want to turn people away. I also don't want to pay the expenses for a room that I'm not going to generate. I don't make enough money the door to cover. Mm -hmm. So it's always a practical thing. But ultimately, how do you, how does it pop off? I don't know. And in terms of like Fugazi's trajectory, I don't know. Like, it's an it's interesting like thing. I, this isn't on the notes that I've got up above the computer, but listening to you right now makes me think about something. And the fact that a lot of this occurred in 90 and 91, do you think that sort of meteoric trajectory or unexpected, you know, sort of massive expansion in terms of response to Fugazi maybe actually kind of played a role in the, in the, the major label feeding frenzy that kind of went on 92 through 94? Yes. Yeah, I've never really, yeah. I've never really thought about sort of something that's at one end of the spectrum in terms of extreme DUI inspired sort of the opposite reaction. You know, but I mean, you, but wait a minute though. I mean, you have to remember, like you know, all Sonic Youth, Who's Could Do, uh, even Nirvana, and all you know, all those bands, they were those actually, like they were DIY bands essentially. Well, saw Nirvana at Bogarts, I know it. Yeah, right. So I so say the point being that that was like, it was. What had happened really was starting in the American punk underground. And I really think, and I'm talking about specifically, you know, the punk hardcore thing, DOA and Black Flag and, you know, those bands, the bands, you know, that really went out and hammered. Big Boys played a lot. Who's could do toured like crazy. You know, the bands that really hit the road. You know, Minor Threat, we, we, you know, we went out and worked. And I think that that, and, you know, then you have all these scenes that were popping up all around. I think that actually created... A, an actual viable underground music scene that mm -hmm. was on its own. And in many ways, I often think about it like we carved out, a, we had like a, a garden in a valley mm -hmm. and the major has always flew over the valley, not thinking of anything down in the valley. They didn't see the garden. And then one day, you know, they're like, wait a minute, what the fuck is that? Right. And they flew down and then they go, this is fertile ground. Let's fucking, let's exploit it. Let's rape the land. Right. So they just signed every band that could get signed. I mean, basically any band that could sell 10,000 records or 5,000 records in 1993, 94, 95 would get a, a record contract. You know, how many friends mm -hmm. do you know who got, who got signed to that era? It was like, it was crazy, right? And, well, quite a few. The, there was a point in my yeah. life where the offspring, where the offspring would, you know, open for us in Arizona and things like that. Well, that, that, right. that didn't last long, did it? Yeah. Right, and I think they play. You know, we we play with them too, and I think yeah, we play Pennywise. That was, that was, that's the Palladium show. No, no, Pennywise. The, no, no, not Pennywise. Pennywise. No, the Offspring was definitely on the plan. The the, uh, oh, the Palladium, right? Yeah. So those shows, those are so Fugazi. That time was much. We were a much larger band, right. um, but so yes, those bands all came through that. But I think at some point the major labels were like, "Yo, that is fertile ground. Let's get down there." And then, you know, they just, and then it was a matter of waiting them out because we knew that as soon as they had exhausted the ground, mm -hmm. they go to the next valley. That's all, you know. Uh, so I think that, um, I definitely think that not just Fugazi, but all the, 
all the bands that were touring, there was like this whole underground scene that just had built. It was so strong. Mm -hmm. um, but unfortunately, you know, the problem, the, what I see, the issue really for me, and the, I'm, in a, I'm in a unique position, or Fugazi was in a really unique position, because unlike most of the bands, we had a label. Mm -hmm. So the other larger bands, they were on other independent labels. And those other independent labels maybe didn't do such a great job. They right. maybe didn't, maybe didn't pay them, for instance, or maybe just didn't treat them that well, you know. And so, I think in many ways the 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 breakdown, like the thing that really kind of sank the American underground at that time, it wasn't the bands being greedy and ambitious. It was the labels being greedy and ineffective or or abusive even um that right. broke down the i think the label system broke down that's right because what you're what's happening naturally in this conversation is that my, my notes are trailing right alongside it uh my next question after after the issue of scale and presenting you know going from something so small to something so large was that by starting in 80 discord was around through several sea changes in you know this sort of amorphous punk rock world and I'm wondering, was anything that was going on in that the, during sort of the mid, the, what they call them the years that punk broke, during, you know, the eruption in, in digital media, was anything, did anything that happened in the last 40 years ever really threaten the sustainability of Discord? Not to my knowledge. It's always been strong? It's always been strong? Just something to do that we want to do, you know. I don't know. It's weird. I don't, I don't, don't I don't, it's not... I think probably the, the secret to our longevity is that we don't think about it like a business. Right. We just but think it's, just, of, it's, it's something to do, you know, like something we want to do. There's just, to me, there, there has to have been remarkable adaptability on you guys' part to roll with the changes because things are not the same as they were. Not in a lot of ways, at least. You know, I mean, I, I, look, I look, for instance, okay, there, there's Discord material available on Spotify, right? And from an artist's perspective, I think a lot less people buy hard medium, buy, buy records or buy music on hard mediums with that out there. And artists don't get paid shit by Spotify. You know, the, the royalty rate is garbage. Now, I'm not mm -hmm. asking you from a moral, from anything about from a moral standpoint on that. I actually think your bona fides are pretty fucking straight. But what I would say is, does it affect, did it, do things like that, do the streaming services affect record sales? Or do they drive record sales in your experience? Well, before you answer that, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Why did you... You've written songs, right? Yeah. So why did you write your songs? What was the point? To have people hear them. Right. So right. why are we talking about sales and money? Well, it's an interesting thing because I'm talking right. to somebody. I'm talking to somebody who... And there's no luck involved. You've busted your ass. But right. you make your living in a space... That I think many of us wish we wish we did or could, you know, it's coulda, shoulda, woulda for a lot of people at this point in life. But it's interesting to stick a thermometer in it and see how the ride has been during certain sea changes. Well, I guess I feel like the the, the beginning, <clears throat> we didn't have a clue how to do a no. record label. None of our we're from Washington D.C. We didn't know. None of our family come from music. None of them. There's mm. no musicians, no music business people, nothing like that. You know, we were completely. Um, we didn't know what we were doing. We just approached it from a really 
pragmatic point of view. Like, okay, mm -hmm. we'll make, what do we need to make? How do we do this? And then how do we sell it? You know, now I guess there's, you know, I will say that, you know, as a result of maybe the graphics and the music, we were, people were interested. You know, mm -hmm. I like to think that we wrote songs that people liked, which is ultimately, right. like if you, you know, I used to say, <clears throat> if you want people to remark upon your music, then write some fucking remarkable music. You know, that's all I can, that's it. You know, like there's nothing, mm -hmm. I don't know what the answer is otherwise. Um, I'm not saying, oh, I've written such remarkable music. I'm merely saying mm -hmm. if you want, if that's what your game is, I just try to write songs that I like. And it's some, for some reason, whatever it is, other people, it resonates, which is, I'm, I'm grateful for that. But um, we didn't know what the fuck we were doing, but we also weren't trying to start a business. Like Jeff and right. I both had jobs, 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 jobs. We didn't take, we didn't actually start paying royalties until probably five years in, you know, we didn't, and the bands all knew like the bands, the agreement was that all the money for the first three years, I think, all the money generated by the sales of a record goes into putting out the next record. That's it. There's no, no one takes money out. Nobody who worked here and nobody, nobody in the bands, all the money would go back to the next thing. Now at some point we actually, we got enough like momentum where we actually started to generate enough money where we could start paying people. Mm -hmm. So at that point it was really crucial in our, from our point of view to pay royalties. I sat last week and sat down for six hours and wrote checks to all the band members. Like that's just my thing, handwriting the checks because I want to think about everybody who was like on the label. Now that is a crucial part of, of the way that label operates, but it's a pragmatic thing. So then once we started selling records um, and we started making them, you know, we did them by hand, as you probably know, we made you know, singles sleeves by hands. And then we just started, then we got to, 12 inch stuff and we start working with you know we've worked with other people like this southern studios in england who really taught us a lot about stuff so we we learned a lot along the way i mean after mm -hmm. a while i mean this is 40 years in december right. right so i guess yeah we've picked up some experience along the way um but um you know also you know you think about it 40 years before the beginning of this label world war ii hadn't started right <laughs> So I'm um, lost in the timeline and how at one point in my life, it seemed like in the eighties, if somebody was four or five years older than you, it seemed like an ocean of time. Now, if somebody's 50 right. years younger than you, it's still an extremely relatable space. Like I, I can't yeah, believe but that's, that's because, but that's because if you think about the way a life is shaped, there's like this, I'm going to use up and down just because it's the way people think, but sure. the beginning of your life, there's this incredible arc of change like your body is growing your mind is growing at some point around 18 or 19 you hit a plateau and that plateau will last for 35 years you know and then you start your body starts changing again you mm -hmm. go into what i call geriatric adolescence, right and okay. it's like you know, I'm, I'm 58 i'll be 59 next year and and mm -hmm. so your body starts to change again but those that plateau evens everybody out like mm -hmm. Oh, you're 40 and 25. That's the same thing. You know, it's like, it's like it doesn't really, I mean, it's a, there's a difference, but it's a lot less of a difference than if you're 15 and one. Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> right. So, right. So that's, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, so I kind of, or even if you're, you know, 
90 and 75. That's a big difference. You know, there's oh, usually yeah. people, right? So I think that if you, you have to think about life in this sort of the, the shape, and that's why those, those, those gaps seem so different. Right. In terms, anyway, going back to your question about discord, I think that we've just tried to be, well, first off, we've never, most labels, I think, want to make it a business. Like they try to expand mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they try to grow their business. We never tried to grow our business. We tried to respond to the demand. So when mm-hmm. Fugazi was playing and suddenly we were selling hundreds of thousands of records, we, it was really, that was really challenging for us. I got to um, imagine. Yeah. It's hard. And we couldn't have done it without the help of for that, you know, Southern studios, this guy, John Loader in England that we worked with, who was really a genius. He died, you know, 15 years ago, but he was okay. uh, just a genius. And he really helped us navigate that, but it had its problems because if you have, for instance, one man that's selling hundreds of thousands of records, all the other bands who are selling five, 10,000 records, they tend to get lost. Mm-hmm. The distributors all want to work with you. So like, let's say you want to distribute hundreds of thousands of records. Well, you need a distributor who can deal with that kind of number, the size of their operation. Mm-hmm. But those people do not care about a band that sells 5,000. Right. So then those bands get screwed. If you start, cause then the distributors want like, well, they want to have like some special arrangement if they're going to take on blah, blah, blah. So then you, so we would have to really think a lot about how do you make sure that we're working with people who will at least be respectful of the other releases because the other releases, mm-hmm. though they may sell less numbers, they're as equally important to us as Fugazi titles. But these are things you think about if you're, I guess if you, if you're not thinking always about profit, then you actually start thinking about structure. And okay. I've always been interested in structure. Like how can we make this thing go and blast? Right. That's what I've been interested in. And well, I also, I'm not, I don't really care that the money stuff is not that interesting to me. Well, I mean, the, there, there's a clear absence of profit motive, which I think is, is a huge inspiration of people, but it is what led me to ask whether times ever got tough, whether, whether the war chest ever wore thin, you know, the only time that we ever, I mean, the very beginning of the label, we, you know, in the very beginning of this, this singles, like the way it would work is we'd, you know, send $600 in a tape to a pressing plant. Mm-hmm. And then they'd send us back a thousand records, you know, or whatever it was, much just a vinyl. And then we have to get the sleeves, maybe we make the sleeves. But basically we had no credit with these pressing plants at all. Mm-hmm. So when that money is out, we're broke. Right. So we have to sell the records and then money from that record comes back and we put out the next record. So then, for example, one of the first really serious dilemmas we ran into, this may be addressing what you're talking about. When Meyer Threat did the Out of Step record, number 10, right? The, our, we decided, like, well, we, we knew we were going to sell a lot of records because the singles had been selling so well. So we decided to do an unheard of pressing, 3,500, which is for us insane. And it took saving up scratching jeff and i had to put all of our money we all had to save money to get them pay for the pressing because we it was cod like we can't mm-hmm. we're not we don't have credit with the plant so to get right. the, literally to get the records we had to pay for them when they were delivered so mm-hmm. once that money was out then we go out on the on the road and, and we ship out so oh sorry so while we're that record being pressed we're getting all these orders and there's most of the orders are from distributors and the distributors buy they buy up almost all of them. 
right? But they don't pay us immediately. They want terms. So usually it's 30 days to pay us or 45 days. But anyone who's ever dealt with a distributor knows that they could just dick you along for months. So I've, I've been there. Yeah. Right. So you sell the, so all the records go out the door, but you have no money for it. So now we're trying to get the money back from the distributor so we can pay to do the next record. Now here's a dilemma. The record was sold out. The whole pressing sold out before we got the press, the records back. Right. Okay. So there's a huge demand for more. So the money we make back, does that money go for the repressing of the Meyer threat record? Or does it go for subject to change, faith, number 11? Interesting. Which those guys are waiting. They've done the tape. They're waiting to, they're waiting to put it out. So does, that, does it make sense for us to put out that record with the money we get back? Or do we put the money into a repress? We know the repressing will sell. That was a dilemma. We would run into those I kind remember, of problems. It's, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that. There's a, there's a the universal crises of the early punk labels, you know, uh, yeah. because I – I mean, I dealt with that a little bit in the small label that I'd been for a brief period of time. But I remember Revelation, Revelation Records, when I was on their label, they would have problems with releases stacking up and waiting to recoup on one to make the next one possible. And right. as, as an artist, it was extremely frustrating. Of course. No, but it was, you know, they made I mean, it as a label, it was, for a label, it was frustrating. But and it's one of the things that really has driven me crazy is so, because I think people can't imagine how broke we were. Mm-hmm. So when they look back at the history of the label, they're like, well, why didn't you guys put this record out? I can't believe right. you didn't put that record out. It's like, we had no money. Like, for mm-hmm. instance, government issue, Boycott Stab, that record. Mm-hmm. Like, I recorded it. It would have been on Discord. We literally didn't have the money to do it. That was number one. That was 10. I think we did a half. It was a 10 and three quarters or something, right? It was like the, right. we did with Fountain of Youth. And that's because Derek Shu from Founder Youth, another local label, says I can put the money up for that. I, I always wondered about that. GI, and in particular, Stab, who I was lucky enough to get to know a little bit towards the end of his life, was, a, was kind of a really pivotal, really influential figure for me. And it always struck me as odd when you started getting to the LPs and the Discord was gone, you know? Yeah, but I think those guys, they had their own, they were on a mission. Like, yeah. I think that we, I mean, Boycott Stab should, we should have been on Discord. And it is mm-hmm. now. Like, we got it, you know, we put out the complete sessions. Mm-hmm. We recorded tons of songs. Um, but I think that, that then they wanted, they were thinking like, great, hey, we want, they went to Giant or whatever. They went, they did that thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And then it's just a different, they're on a different trajectory. I, right. Most people, I think people, bands are ambitious, yeah, and, I was thinking more along along the time along the Joyride, uh, fun just never ends period. But you know, yeah. sort of pre pre giant. But yeah, 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 yeah. yeah they may, and they may well have been. But I think I think that the Fountain of Youth, and when that happened, I don't know. It just yeah. I think we just sort of became parallel tracks. And they were very. Hmm. Those guys are doing. They were huge here, GI, yeah. and they were you know they were touring. They, they were doing great. I think they were quite happy with their arrangement. And Discord, yeah. it's funny over the years people. There have been many bands who said, like, you guys just don't do enough promotion. Mm-hmm. Um, they, because they, they're coming at it from a more traditional record. I don't know. Like, we never made videos or any of that kind of crap. Right? And, uh, but my feeling was always that the label is the promotion. Mm-hmm. And just Strong go, label, yeah. go play shows and write good songs and go do your work and we'll put out the records. But I think for other a lot of bands, they're really like, we want a different kind of support. And said, good, then you want to be on a different label. Right? Yeah, live and let live, sure. 
Right, which is fine. I don't have any issue with that. I think mostly, mostly, you know, there's a, I used to, I just don't want people to be unhappy mm-hmm. with Discord. I mean, there have been labor who really strong armed us or bands who really strong armed us and wanted us to do things that are just, uh, on principle, I'm just not, just not going to well, do. You and I are sort of beating up on the time windows that we sort of mutually set for ourselves in this thing. Um, there is, in other words, we're going a little bit long for, for what we kind of talked about. There is, no, I appreciate the conversation, but there's something I wanted to ask you about. It was, sure. I was looking at pictures the other day of Fugazi playing Lafayette Park, right? Which one? Lafayette Park. Uh huh, yeah. Right? And then I was thinking about what's gone on in Lafayette Park this year yeah. and the fact that you're there, you know, you're in DC. It would be a missed opportunity for me not to ask you what this, what, what this year has been like so close to the nation's capital. I mean, it looks. It looks uh, hopefully unlike anything we'll ever see again. But has it has it has it brought you down? Has it been motivating? Has it been horrifying? Uh, you know, DC. If you live here, you kind of, I mean, you're kind of. I mean, yes, of course. It's in you know. <clears throat> I think of the U.S. government as a giant business. Okay. Like I live in like you live in you live near L.A. right. Mm-hmm. Hollywood is a business. No, say showbiz. Yeah. It's, that's a business. And what are those people, what is their fundamental primary interest? Making money, like power okay. and money. Here, that business is called the federal government. Mm-hmm. And their primary mission, each one of the people who work in that world, they are interested in making money and power. That's what they're about. And so the person in charge like, first off, you have to be an asshole to even be a congressperson. Like, you know, like a, a rep. Mm-hmm. You have to be a bigger asshole to be a senator. And you have to be a fucking giant asshole to be a president, right? Because you have to really think, you just have to think, like, I want to be, it's like, I'm, I want to be there. I don't care by any means necessary. I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying they're bad human beings. I'm just saying that they're, they're kind of assholes. And, you know, and so the current occupant i mean it is a little startling because i'm so used to a certain kind of power tripped person yeah no, he gives a fuck about decorum right yeah. this guy but i'm saying but like i have to say like with the exception of maybe jimmy carter okay like i don't i don't think of any of the presidents really has ever shown like a sense of empathy like jimmy carter said wear a sweater you know Right. I love that guy. He's he a, such a he bad has, rep. He, I was going to say his framing in history. He's aging well. You know? Yeah, but if you go back, go back and look at some of his shit, and you'll your mind will be blown. Well, all you have to do is get into foreign policy and any romanticism you have about any American president. Right. Or it starts to take a really serious beat. Right. So anyway, so the point being, yes, the current CEO, CEO of that company of that company. Okay. He's fucking nuts, and it's insane to it's insane to actually it's be like though if you had like a giant if you're in Detroit and the guy who takes over GM suddenly is like you know only making exploding cars you're like what the fuck is this guy thinking right sure. like a cars where the steering wheels snap off and you can't right. why would he bring in the staff to design cars where the steering wheels snap off right. I can't understand it I don't understand the decision other than to think. That while 
the star, the steering wheel, they're snapping off all these cars. They're just pilfering and robbing everything around us. That's what I right. think. So I feel like that's all this, that's all, that's, this, that's what these guys have been doing all along, just mm-hmm. sowing crazy chaos. So for me, it's just a matter of patience. Like we'll wait yeah. them out. You know, right. that's the good thing about human beings is they die. So, you know, and it's just a matter of time. Here's my, tag, um, here's my tagline for the interview. The good yeah. thing about human beings is they die. <laughs> they die, right. I mean, every despot is dead, right? In the history yeah. of the world. Yeah. Every despot, if he's either, and it's almost always a he, but every mm-hmm. despot we've known about from the past is no longer with us. Right. Right. So, so I would say it's been, I can't. You know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty, like, I work with what's in front of me. So, yes, like, in terms of, I've seen a lot of people, I know a lot of people who have lost their businesses. Mm-hmm. It's sad, you know, it's a pandemic, you know, and right. we're not used to that. We're not used to that reality. Um, the racial situation, you know, the what's going on and that, that is, it's not new. Mm-hmm. It's certainly nothing new. It's pretty enthralling. You know, like, like to see people step out and step up. I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not into rioting. Right. I find it, uh, I understand on some levels, I understand it. Um, mm-hmm. But I think there are also a lot of people who are, well, first of all, I think there are people who are opportunists who just make it a headache for everybody else. But even I think more um, pernicious are, I actually think are people who are coming from the other side. Yeah. Who are actually, you know, you know, I don't know, years ago, I think it was the Republican National Convention in Miami, and maybe it was in 2000. I can't remember, maybe it was 2004. Anyway, I don't know. Anyway, there was, do you remember the Black Block, those people? It was yeah. like the precursor to Antifa. Yeah, no, and, and I, I remember I was exposed to them a lot more in Germany. All right, so those people, yeah. so there was, that was what was happening at the time. Mm-hmm. And there was this very, I mean, I remember seeing this footage where there was, you know, helicopter footage and then you could see all these people. There was like a fenced, like a big police fence and there's police on one side and then the camera would go over and you'd see all the black block people, like right. all these people dressed in black with the balaclavas and that kind of stuff. But at one point, the camera swung back to the secure area and we see the police and the vehicles and there's just a bunch of like empty streets and there's like, police back there like eating and whatever you know resting and there's a bunch of guys dressed as black block they're with the police yeah because they are part of like this is nothing new this can't you know count to, and yeah no i'm going to go right? back to the black panthers infiltration is infiltration right exactly is so old thing so my thing i guess i always feel like well you gotta just you gotta try to keep the cops bored the best you can, you know, because otherwise you just end up spending all your time fighting them. And I just, right. so that's, so I think that, you know, but th- I've been down, we went down, you know, during the uh, Black Lives Matter stuff. It was pretty incredible. The energy was pretty. I, I, wonder, I wondered about that because, I mean, it was on my, you know, it was on my screen nightly and it was going off, it was popping off in Long Beach here, which is, yeah. you know, 20 minutes from me. But I thought about that. I mean, for me, I'm a punk rock kid. I equate DC with Discord and with my own experiences there. And then I'm seeing, you know, during the George Floyd era and sort of the militarization of the police right there in front of the Capitol. And I was just thinking, yeah. I wonder how this lands with these guys. And I wonder how many people I would recognize are down there at any given point. You know? Well, I don't know. I mean, yeah. a lot of those, I mean, a lot of the DC original people don't live here anymore. But I, I mean, most people I know went down there. 
yeah. like my brother and his family went down there and Joe was, Joe Lally was down there and we all went down. It's just, you got to be there, you know, go down and make the scene. Um, the militarization thing, that's just a, I mean, to me, that's just a manifestation of a deep sickness in this culture, you know, but it mostly it's just the gear was made and they got to sell it to somebody. Right. You know, it's, you know, no, it's I, so I started writing material out. about a Becker and Ferguson, you know, when they were rolling, when they were yeah, rolling yeah. gas tanks and so forth out, I was, I was horrified. Yeah. Um, listen, I, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed doing this. I, uh, you know, you were very patient in us chasing each other around to get a date organized. I appreciate that. Um, no problem. Does it make yeah. any sense, this interview? Is this, a, this the kind of interview you want to do? It's long, sir. For, for, all of our, for all of our talk about 30 minutes, we went right past it. Um, yeah. which, which leads me to think that if you don't end up swearing off podcasts entirely just because of their exhausting nature, I will probably bug you again sometime down the road when the subject matter presents itself. Did, what you know, were your subjects we didn't cover? No, no, no. We hit everything. I, one thing I thought about is the amount of responsibility that I perceive coming with Discord and the sheer volume of work that I imagine goes with it. Has it ever affected your love for this? I mean, it's got, it seems to me it would be a different energy than it, than it was as a teenager or as a... I think when, when most of us first got into punk rock, the music came first, and there were, very, there were very few mechanisms or mechanics behind it, like very few physical responsibilities, very little actual work besides the road work itself and the songwriting and everything else. Well, you've been surrounded by boxes of records for four decades now. Yeah. You know, but still also, love I mean, it? Yeah, but I'm also... Yes. Absolutely. But I also, I mean, I've worked with so many people have worked for discord. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's different. Like I'm at discord house by myself, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, for years, I'm in this little tiny office, you know, three people would be working in here. Right. And it was really a, like you spent a lot of time with people, which I loved. And it was, this house was like constantly people were just coming and going at all times. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's different now. Like now I'm largely sort of here on my own, especially now with the pandemic stuff. Right. You know, usually okay. in the summer, people are showing up all the time to take pictures on the porch or whatever, that kind of thing. I've or always people thought just, that would drive me batshit. You appear to be quite gracious about, great, gracious about that, but. I, I'm pretty easy going, yeah. you know? Yeah, I'm just here. I, so I feel like I, I realize, I recognize that my life is unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always owned my own time, really. Uh, and um, I couldn't have done it without the generous and consistent support of the bands and the people in the bands, the bands and the people who work with me. So I feel like I have an obligation to them. I mean, I was very careful not to say the founder or solo founder or sole founder and right. not, not use operator to try and not use deifying terms because I'm, I'm keenly aware that there, that there's a cast. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And then, and it's, and it's long. And, and also, I mean, I mean, it's true that, you know, we've been around for 40 years, but I think of in the 40 years, I think I have three or four people who worked with me for over two decades. That's a long time, you know, <laughs> you know, and they've all, and I'm still, they're still friends. We're still, I love everybody. You know, it's all good. Um, there's a few people, who, you know, over the years that, you know, worked here very briefly, who I don't, don't know them anymore, but by and large, people who work here, I know them, they're all, they're all people who are like part of the action, they're part of the family. One, um, one of the, one of the funnest thing about doing these, 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 these Zoom casts is that 
I've been able to reach back to people that I was one time close to and that I was affiliated with, be it through Maximum Rock and Roll or be it through, you know, my own record label and things like that. Um, so I get that. I mean, I'm hearing a certain romance about all of this in your voice and I can relate. You know. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not, to be clear, I'm not nostalgic. Okay. I'm not sentimental. So I got, though you're, you though, you're, though, you're known, though you're known as a massive archivist. Yeah, that's not about sentimentality, though. Okay. That's about if you have the stuff, mm-hmm. take the fuck care of it, right? Like, the way I look at it is like, our, what the American punk scene created mm-hmm. was something that was done in spite of the mass media and because of the, what, you know, what we created was so under the radar, the, the powers that actually control music and thus music history are not going to talk about us. Like that history is not going to be recorded by the Grammys. Now they'll talk about Nirvana, right? Right. They're going to talk about Nirvana. They're going to talk about these things, but really, you know, the scene that we, we are a part of, Mm -hmm. there are kids who created their own bands, their own records, their own fanzines, put on their own shows, um, created a touring network, took care of each other. Like, you know, people, you know, like you and I both know people all over the country. You know, mm-hmm. like, you know I saw you talk to Pete Kramiak. You know, Pete Kramiak was a kid from Rhode Island who came down here. You know, right. I saw you talking to Kevin Seconds. Kevin and I just started writing letters to each other, you know, because we just had heard about each other's music. Mm-hmm. I mean, but I, you know, this is like, this is all made, this is real time. These are people completely, it was not about making it money or making, making it musically. It was just about making something that we could be a part of. And I think it was a, um, I think a hugely important chapter in cultural history, but uh, one that will largely, um, can, will be invisible uh, because of the way are the this is where the way the, the civilizations are recorded mm-hmm. you know rome you always hear about rome and their fucking shit but you're right. not going to hear about what's you know like the what even like the inca you know like you're not going to hear about them so much right? right um so i feel like i my situation is peculiar i'm 58 years old i've lived in three houses my entire life my father still lives in the first one I grew up, the one I grew up in, and I own the other two. So I didn't have to throw shit away. Right. I still have it. And, Interesting observation because, yeah, I've been stripped down to the bolts a few times. Right. Not me. I have, you know, I'm a Discord house. I lived in this house for 21 years. So I have things like I'm the person who can look around this room and tell you what everything is. Mm-hmm. It's also the way my brain works. And it suddenly occurred to me, like, well, why did I keep this stuff? Because I'm not a hoarder. Okay. Like, I don't, I don't like, oh, more and more for me, more for me. But why did I keep it? Uh-huh. Well, I kept it because it was something that was important to me and I think to other people. And I want to make it available in a way. Uh-huh. So then I thought, all right, I have all this stuff. I'm going to die at some point. So when I die, who's going to deal with this? Well, in theory, Amy my wife, my partner, right? That's not fair to her. Here's a bunch of boxes. Good luck. So I'm fucking organizing it. Get it organized. And then figure out where it can go. So I've been working at University of Maryland. 
you know, I have thousands of fanzines. You know, I have, you know, I worked, you know, they're, they've helped us. They've scanning all the, the fanzines, that right. collection, like that's being, that's organized. I organized 35 years of punk correspondence. I probably have a fucking letter from you in there. If I you would imagine know. so. Yeah. Right. So um, I kept it all. Mm-hmm. Well, not all, but I kept a lot of it. So that is actually, a, like, here's a thought. I think the American punk scene may well be the last youth movement in America, at least, that used paper to correspond with. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. It doesn't exist anymore, right? People mm-hmm. don't write letters the same way. I'm not nostalgic for it, but it's, mm-hmm. it was fucking important. Yeah, agreed. So, and, and, so and, my and, work is like, I don't look at it, oh, this is so great. I wish things were like that. I don't. I wish things were like what they are right the fuck now. It doesn't, reek, in, of, it, yeah. it doesn't reek of any narcissistic motivation. It comes off more as a, as a response as a sense of responsibility. And in that, I think I understand it even better now having talked to you about it. Right. I think that's, I would say that's, it's certainly not, not narcissistic. I don't sell stuff. Right. It's not about me. On the other hand, like people, you know, I've been typing up my journals, right? Right. Actually, I think I have, I meet you, met you, Max and Rock and Roll, is that 87 or 86 or 87? 86, I think. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I have. But, but I have we, we learned through the Zed Records story that my memory is shit by comparison to yours. So whatever right. year you say it is, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about like, oh look, I just I think right after you contacted me about doing the interview, yeah. I was typing in my journal and I was like, oh look, like I meet you yeah. at maximum, and right. uh, and people say, well, why are you ri- typing up your journals? Are you writing a book? No, I'm not writing a book. That's not why I'm doing it. And they're like, then why are you doing this? I said for this very fucking moment to talk to you, like to have a reason to call you and say like, Hey, I just like, look what I just typed up. And then like that to me, I feel like so much of the discourse in the world now, or at least the world that I exist in is dominated by the trauma that people are experiencing largely through their relationship with social media. And I find that conversation just maybe a little south of weather as being boring and predictable and and pointless. Like, I feel like if you don't, like, of course, there's, I mean, I don't know why punks are surprised that the government sucks. We knew that from day one, right? I have a, I have a counter, I have a counterpoint. It's the one thing that you're saying though, and it's, it's an old fart counterpoint, but it has to do with social media, all right? And that is, by and large, one of the great things about having been, you know, into punk rock in the early 80s, mid-80s, and everything else, right, was that it was so small, it was so immediate. Even though we weren't cellular, we were all mostly pen pals or calling people on landlines, you know, there was a lot of direct communication, and the networking was fantastic, right? Yet somehow, in all of my decades in this music, I'd never crossed paths with Vic Bond. Okay. Yeah. And he was someone I admired and someone whose work impressed me. Well, he reached out to me on the social networks in response to some of my political posts. Did I say something about social media? About the, I said, well, the talk, the I said, no, no, I not, said, no, 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 hold on a second. You're seizing upon, you're seizing upon, like you think that I'm saying social media is bad. I'm saying that the discourse is largely 
surrounding the trauma they've experienced via social media. So it's a relation. It's a different. It's a different thing. I don't have any look. I'm fucking talking to you right now on a form of social media, right? So I've already we've already established it's a miracle, and I'm glad that you were able to find Vic that way. You probably could have called him on a phone. I had his number. (laughs) You know, I could give you his number, but I understand. I'm not a don't I? You know, I use email. I'm not. It's not like I. I'm not against. I just for me this problem with social media, or I should say, specifically, having a device in your pocket. Dings every time somebody puts bad news on there. It's a leash. Right. And then you think about the people who are doing that. That is their job. Their job is to get you to look at the screen. So they're not going to put down good news. Mm -hmm. Usually it's like, they want you to keep looking. Like I was listening to the, they're doing a fundraiser for the local public radio. And they're just saying, you know, you know, you, can you imagine only being able to get the news you know, in, in the morning, in the evening, can you imagine not being able to get the crucial information you need to know? Why the fuck do you need to know something at two in the afternoon mm-hmm. that happened in, in, in fucking Seattle or in, or in, in, in Peru or what do you, why do we, what difference would it make if it was at five o'clock versus two? It right. makes no fucking difference. That is actually a conceit on their part. And I think is a, way to make you feel like that you're missing something not you one is feeling right. like missing something and i think that relationship is unhealthy and i think that when people 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 i know who are really struggling mm-hmm. psychologically i think i would say almost every one of those people maybe everyone mm-hmm. is traumatized by their relationship with social media it's an interesting observation, and I heard you say that on another podcast and was, was kind of fascinated by the observation. I think where you and I just butted heads here is I see Zoom or even cell phones as technology and the networks as an entity and an animal unto themselves, which is, it's sort of the show, it's sort of show and tell culture. But I have, but it, but it, but it, but right, I'm just saying, saying to me, I see them, I see them both as mediums that are unusual. Okay. The Zoom, Zoom and Zoom is is a more passive media, right? Mm-hmm. At the moment, because you're because it's not coming to you. Right. It's the notifications that is the problem. Like I look at the I'm New York inclined, Times. I'm inclined to agree with you. It's yeah. the New York. I look at NewYorkTimes.com on my mm-hmm. computer, and I'll mm-hmm. look it through. And there's an article I might read it. Um, I would not have New York Times sending me information all day long why do i need to know like what like what the results and fucking the voting results in wisconsin are a month after the election when i'm taking a shower i don't fucking need to know that i can find out later on um but i think the misery because i think people are terrified and i'm not i'm not terrified yeah, do things suck? Yes, and then you know what? Things have always sucked. Do you remember back in the bad old days when the punk, when the skinhead thing was so crazy? Absolutely. And there was like these white power skin guys all over the country. Do you remember that? Oh, they closed both of my eyes at the Olympic Auditorium. Right. Okay. Yeah. Those people. Those. Like I remember, people were saying like, "We got to fight these guys. We got to. We got to." Sh-. There's some people who had this philosophy like, "We got to fight them. Fight fire with fire. We got to beat them down." My philosophy was, learn their first names. Mm-hmm. 
and just realize they're just people. They're unpleasant people, but if we kill them, it's not like we've rid the world of assholes. Assholes are a virus, mm-hmm. and that virus just floats around. It's always somewhere, right? It's always yep. somewhere, the virus. So obviously, if they're hurting people, we got to stop them. But the idea that we have to errat- we would be able to eradicate all of assholedom by beating up these five or eight or 12 or 24 dudes at some show is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, there's always bad news in the world. Always. There's always has been. The human ability and propensity to, to be brut- brutal and violent and do, do this horribleness, I don't understand it. I does not, I don't, I can't relate to it, but it clearly exists. And for all this shit that goes on here, like think what's going on in Ethiopia right now. That is fucked up. Mm-hmm. Is it makes what goes on here nothing, right. right? So, I feel like people. There's no point being terrified. Mm-hmm. There's no point in it because if you're terrified, then you're tight and you can't do anything. I think that people should be aware and compassionate and. They should work hard for things. They should, you know, they see something, they think they can lend a hand, lend a fucking hand. Right. But don't sit in your house and just be like, the world sucks. I'm terrified and everything's fucked up because not everything is not fucked up. Most things are not fucked up. Most things in this life are beautiful. Well, forgive me, but that is a perfect exit point. So I'm going to get the hell out of here. All right. Well, um, Ian, this was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, turn your recorder off. I'm going to see if I can find my maximum rock and roll thing for you. Will do. Hey, everyone. This is Tuck from Fit for a King, an off-road minivan. Every week, I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media.